You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Brett. Bob, how are you? I'm doing fine. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Brett Stevens, very well-known columnist for the New York Times. Uh, we had a, a, a pretty broad conversation about foreign policy some months ago. Uh, this time we're going to have a less broad one. We're going to talk about Israel, um, possibly disagree about the subject, and we're going to talk about U.S. policy toward Israel and perhaps toward the Middle East more broadly. Okay. Um, I want to start by acknowledging that you may know the territory better than I do. You were actually editor of the Jerusalem Post, right, for some time? I was, uh, just as the uh, Intifada was taking shape. Uh, the, the second Intifada? The second Intifada, yeah. The more violent one. Uh, not a pleasant period of time. Um, so, uh, I don't know where we should begin. It seems like we can begin anywhere and then we will inexorably come to <laughs> argue about stuff. Um, well, let me, let me ask you, how do you feel about the present level of U.S. support for Israel? You mean on a governmental level? Or? I, on, any, on any level. I mean, how, how happy are you with, uh, the U.S., the U.S. government's attitude toward Israel? I think the U.S. should look at Israel as um, uh, a terrific ally uh, and a pretty damn good friend. Um, and we should be grateful that it's there for uh, strategic reasons. And we should be grateful that we see um, a liberal democracy for all of its imperfections um, uh, uh standing up for a set of shared values in a difficult region. Okay, well, you may be able to guess one kind of reply you get from critics of Israel when you talk about democracy and shared liberal values there, which is uh, the the situation of the Palestinians in the West Bank in particular, right? Oh, I hadn't considered it. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you've heard of the Palestinians. Uh, I no, 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 no. Well, okay, no. let me let me give you a, a brief uh, brief primer. Um, so yeah, you know what I mean. You know, Israel ultimately is the ruler in the West Bank and in in all of the areas. Ultimately, it has authority. Uh, and Palestinians aren't allowed to vote. They don't. Again, you know, it's not the ruler in Gaza. Israel withdrew every last settlement, every last settler from there in 2005 at a very high domestic political price. And uh, it also withdrew from its border with Egypt. So contrary to widespread perception, uh, Gaza borders two countries. And the result for Israel was not more peace. It was more war. Um which is, if you're an average Israeli voter, uh, not an encouraging sign for what might happen if Israel were to do the same thing uh, in the West Bank. Okay. And that, so that's what I was talking about was the fact that Palestinians in the West Bank can't vote and don't get, you know, due process well, of the law. Israel. in the West Bank can't vote because Mahmoud Abbas is now in the 17th year of his elected four-year term of office, which is another thing which I almost never hear um, with some honorable exceptions, like my colleague Roger Cohen, I almost never hear 
liberals uh, acknowledge that the fact that the first tyranny uh, and the primary tyranny under which Palestinian ordinary Palestinians suffer is a Palestinian tyranny, not an Israeli. Okay, but could we just? I mean, I'm referring to the Israeli elections and the fact that Israel calls itself a democracy, but it does ultimately rule the Palestinians in the West Bank, millions of them, and does not let them vote in its elections. So I'm happy to talk about any of the other things you're raising, but... No, no, but but here, look, I'm not trying to, to be obnoxious and to just get into a quarrel, but I think it's important to be clear here. Uh... People who are either called Israeli Arabs or Israeli Palestinians not only do vote, but they're represented in government. In fact, they're represented in the cabinet of Israel. I don't know where else that happens in the Middle East in any meaningful sense, but at least in this last election, if it weren't for those Israeli Arabs or Israeli Palestinians, whatever, however you want to describe them, you wouldn't have a ruling coalition uh, at the moment. There is a Palestinian authority that was constituted under the terms of the Oslo Agreement. The Palestinian authority uh, pretends to be a democracy, but is in fact a dictatorship. Palestinians ought to be able to vote in Palestinian elections, but the last time such an election was held was in 2006, which brought Hamas to power. And ideally, as a supporter of the two-state solution, I hope Palestinians do get to vote in a free and democratic Palestinian state that uh, is not at war with its neighbors. Um, And how you bring that about in a way that is not only creates a viable Palestinian state, but creates a viable Palestinian state that isn't a threat to its neighborhood is, is the great diplomatic question. But before we get into the question of Palestinians not being able to vote, uh, that's just a that's just I think a false premise. Well, wait, Palestinians in the West Bank are not allowed to vote in Israeli elections. Yeah, that's... and Canadians are not allowed to vote in American elections. Well, yeah, but we don't govern them. I can't. I our police can't go into the home of any of them and arrest them. Yes, because what you had is a complex situation in which you had a kind of a halfway house. Palestinian Authority, which came legally into being with the creation of the Oslo Accords, but never got out of that halfway house. And again, didn't get out of the halfway house primarily because when Yasser Arafat was offered state in 2000, he said no. And you don't have to take my word for it. You just have to listen to what uh, Bill Clinton said about it uh, back then. So they are in this halfway house. It is a weird and complex and deeply, in many ways, deeply vexing and tragic situation. But it's not as if the Israelis are simply decided one day to not allow Palestinians to vote. This is essentially the world's messiest divorce. And uh, um, until people recognize that that's essentially what, what's taking place, then you're going to get the sign of, oh, Palestinians aren't, aren't allowed to vote. Israelis aren't allowed to vote in Palestinian Authority elections either. Yeah, but the Palestinian Authority, again, cannot go into Israel and arrest Israelis. They're not running Israel. Israel is in control of the West Bank. Yes, Israel is in control. I'm just asking, if a government does not let all the people it controls vote, can it call itself a democracy? Okay, why is Israel in control of the West Bank? Uh, Because of the 1967 war. 
And what exactly happened in 1967 that Israel came into possession of the West Bank? I'm not an expert, but I know that Israel, Israel, but uh, let me, let me give you my understanding. If, I mean, I'm not sure how productive this is. Israel feared an, uh, an impending attack from Arabs and so struck preemptively. Uh, you know, Israel fired the first shot and wiped out, uh, Egypt's air force and so on, but would say that it was a preemptive and, and therefore in some sense defensive war. That's what Israel would say. But, uh, but, but I mean, look, however it acquired the territory, here, here's another question for you. Do you agree that the settlements are in violation of international law? No. You don't believe they violate the Fourth Geneva Convention, which Israel signed and which forbids the transfer of civilian populations into territory acquired by force? No, and I'll get to that in a second. But again, you can't just say, well, something happened back in, you know, the, the, the dawn of time and we can't really have a conversation about it because who knows what specific things happened that led Israel to the control of the West Bank. And that's really material to our conversation, Bob. Okay, Israel attacked Egypt in 1967 and and Syria because Gamal uh, Abdel Nasser and the regime in Syria uh, threatened Israel's total annihilation. Okay, Israel was not in control of the West Bank. Israel was not in control of Gaza. Israel was not in control of the Golan Heights at the time. Okay, Israel, by almost any account, okay, any serious account, struck first because it was existing under an existential threat barely 22 years after the end of uh, of, of uh, the Holocaust and of the Second World War. But Israel did not strike first in the West Bank. This point is important. The West Bank was controlled illegally by Jordan, which had had 19 years, a 19-year opportunity to establish a Palestinian state, but which failed to do so. It simply occupied the West Bank, okay? So the West Bank was not recognized as Jordanian territory internationally by anyone. The Israelis sent private messages to the king of Jordan, King Hussein, and said, please don't attack us because we are already fighting on two fronts. We don't want to fight on a third. King Hussein made a historic mistake. He attacked. He started shelling West Jerusalem, including the hospital in which my daughter was born, the Hadassah and Karim Hospital. She was born sometime after 1967, obviously. All right. Because Jordan attacked, Israel struck back, and that's how Israel came into the reluctant possession of the West Bank, because it was attacked, all right? Now, then it held on to the West Bank, and it was never considered, at least Israelis rightly didn't consider it occupied, because it was disputed territory, because the 1948 war had ended in an armistice without clear borders. The so-called international border, the green line between Israel and the West Bank is an armistice line. Right? It's not an internationally recognized, an internationally recognized border. So you had once again a difficult historic situation that was brought upon by a desire of Israel's neighbors to annihilate it. And that's the that's the central point that we have to, to contend okay. with. Unless you recognize that as the premise, the whole argument seems to me uh uh, uh misjudged. Now it goes without saying that the Palestinians have a, a different narrative about certain aspects of this and about, uh, and, and, I mean, for example, they would point to the armistice lines and say, you're right, they're only armistice lines because the original territory given Israel by the UN is, is much smaller than that. And they would, so they would contest in the other direction 
uh, the, the, the kind of territorial implications of the armistice lines. But I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get into that. I mean, you know about the Nakba and, 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 and their, uh, and their side of the story, I'm sure, even though you would emphasize different things and contest different things. Let me, let me just say this. Um, you know, Gershom Gorenberg, you're probably familiar with him. He's an Israeli journalist. Yeah, of course. He's a, he's a Zionist. He's a liberal Zionist, but he's a Zionist. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, called The Accidental Empire. Uh, and as I recall, um, the beginning of the book, uh, it says that after the 1967 war, is Israel's foreign ministry consulted its like leading lawyer, the foreign ministry's legal authority, and said, would it be legal to build settlements in the uh, territory that we have acquired? And the verdict came back, no. Okay, that was the view given to the foreign ministry. For whatever reason, and, and, and that has been the consensus uh, pretty much outside of Israel ever since, uh, as as reflected in various UN Security Council resolutions, um, and and so on. So, uh, and, and in fact, the Fourth Geneva Convention does forbid the transfer of civilian uh, populations into territory acquired by force. So, uh, but but just to be clear on your position, you're not willing to that concede. That would just exclude, by the way, every American who lives in California. But go ahead. Well, that actually happened before the Fourth Geneva Convention. Uh, I, I understand, but historically, the way it tends yeah, to work, well, is these things aren't. I, I'm not here to defend conquer territory. <laughs> I'm in, not known in, for defending American foreign policy in general, whether before or after the Accords. But these things tend to not be retroactive, no, so that, that like would not apply. That everyone who's listening in here, from any anywhere from Texas to California, ought to consider themselves a settler. But go go go, go ahead. Um. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, but I mean, if we're talking about international law, we're talking about things that have happened since the law was laid down, right? Listen, okay. So let's talk a little bit about international law because quite frankly, if this were simply a territorial issue, right? If Israel's dispute with the Palestinians and at least until recently with the wider Arab world were simply a matter of where you draw a border, this would have been this whole thing would have been settled a long, long time ago, okay? It would have, because Israel has shown more willingness to relinquish territory for the sake of genuine peace agreements than any other state I know. Israel came through military conquest into possession of the territory three times its own size. And the result of it was it withdrew from it. It withdrew from Sinai. It withdrew from the Gaza Strip. It withdrew from its security uh, security zone in in Lebanon. Israel has shown, and it withdrew from most of the populated areas or many of the populated areas of the West Bank. Israel has shown a consistent willingness to withdraw from territory for the sake of peace. And I'm not. I mean, look, the settlement issue is a complex issue. But but if the settlement issue were the real issue, we'd all say, hallelujah, just get out of the settlements, get peace, and then that's the end of the story. The problem is that the war that Israel is fighting is not about 1967. It's about 1948. It's not about what territory Israel controls. And that's, that's the basic falsehood of the narrative that I think drives much of the discussion. It's about 1948. It's about whether Israel is going to be allowed to exist in any border. That's... If you want to talk about what the issue is, that's the issue. And, you know, I sometimes feel like when I'm 
you know, when I used to do a lot of reporting in Gaza, it was always a relief to talk to Hamas people because they were at least honest about the nature of the conflict. They weren't they weren't trying to shade the truth by talking about settlements in 1967. That's a Western fantasy that if Israel just withdrew to 1967, everything would be fine. If Israel withdrew to 1967, you'd return to the same situation you had before 1967, which was too much of the Arab world bent on destroying uh, a members a member state of the United Nations, and that's the real uh, um, uh, violation of international law. Well, you said the settlements aren't a problem, and we could we could uh, no, you know return return to nineteen sixty seven. We couldn't we couldn't return to the nineteen sixty seven borders, and the reason is the settlements. You know, there's no way you're going to get full withdrawal from those from those settlements, and that is one of the complications well, why, historically why, why to reaching a two state solution. Drew every single settler from Gaza in two thousand five. Oh come on, you know Israeli politics, Brett. You know you're not going to get out uh, them to leave. What is it, Ariel or whatever? Yeah, you know. Come on. And they've never even proposed that. I mean, I, I, I look, probably know Israeli politics better than you do. And if you had said in that's year, my point, if you had said in the year 2000 that Israel was going to withdraw all of the settlements from Gaza, that people would say eh, very, very unlikely, especially because they knew we were doing so essentially under, under fire. Israel has consistently shown an incredible, extraordinary willingness to withdraw from territory for the sake of peace. Now, have they done so perfectly? Are the settlements uh, um, non-problematic? No and no. Settlements in many respects are very problematic, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge that the settlements are not an unproblematic exercise, and we can have, like, a lengthy conversation about them. But we're, where I'm disagreeing with you, I think, or what I'm at least trying to say, is the settlements are not the core issue. If they were the issue, we wouldn't have a problem. Okay, so you, I guess you're saying the the way you, or one way you know they're not the issues, you said that around 2000, Israel offered the Palestinians a state and they didn't take it. You're, yeah. talking, about, you're talking about the Camp David? Camp David, and then, by the way, uh, eight years after that, when Ehud Olmert offered Abbas another state and they didn't take it again. Okay, so as for Camp David, I mean, I, I'd say two things. As as for the the role the settlements played, uh, Israel certainly wasn't willing to withdraw from all the settlements. Uh, it offered um, to compensate the Palestinians for uh, for for hanging on to the settlements by giving them some land within Israel. But even there, the ratio it offered them, according to Robert Malley, who was there. Uh, was nine to one. They, they, they were saying to the Palestinians, for every nine acres of land we hold on to in the West Bank, we will give you one acre of land in Israel. Okay. So that was that offer. Yeah. Mally's, Mally's vision of this is fiercely contested by people like Dennis Ross. And because it was a closed negotiation at Camp David, uh, it's, it's an open question, uh, who, which source is more. I, I've never heard Ross. I've never heard Ross contest that claim, but the larger point is you said they were offered a state. Now, when I think of a state, and I think when most people think of a state, when you just ask, what do we mean by a sovereign state? You would say, well, for one thing, you get to control your own borders. For another thing, you get to control your own airspace. These are things we just associate with a state. Now, has yes. Israel, has Israel ever offered the Palestinians that? 
Yes, well, and there's a reason why they haven't, okay, which is that every time in which Palestinian figures, either in the PLO or Hamas, have controlled territory, they've used the territory to attack Israel from within its 1967 lines. That's a real problem, uh, Bob. And that's, this is, this is an issue that, that simply will only go away when a new, uh, generation of Palestinian leaders takes over and says, you know what? We want to be more like the United Arab Emirates than we want to be like Hezbollah in Lebanon. We want a state modeled on Costa Rica, not Yemen. That's the real issue, which is the use of Palestinian territory to attack Israeli civilians in Israeli areas. And that's, that's, that's the central problem. It's, do you think that Israelis wake up and capriciously say, let's make the life of Palestinians a misery? And let's bring on all of this international opprobrium and get the Bob Reichs of the world to be angry with us and otherwise well-meaning liberals to, to, to hate us because we just feel like oppressing Palestinians. I mean, do you think that's what the average Israeli thinks every day? Oh, I'm so greedy for this little extra acre of land. And by the way, we're talking about tiny amounts of land here. I mean, the West Bank is maybe the size of a fraction of Long Island, Right. It's not, we're not talking about a huge amount of, 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 of territory. Do you think Israelis wake up and say, let's just be nasty to our neighbors? That this, I mean, that's, a, that's actually not a No, I, I actually question. don't. I actually don't. I, I think Israelis feel genuinely threatened. And I don't think they are uh, overreacting any more than Americans overreacted to 9-11 when they felt genuinely threatened. On the other hand, I was complaining at the time that America was hugely overreacting. I just think people have a tendency to overreact. I'm not, I'm not saying... 9-11 was nothing, okay? And I, and that's, I that's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, look... I, I, no, no, but hang on. Let me finish this but, I Yeah, you should, actually. <laughs> There's no, no, it's, who, no it's, it's important. I don't want to be misunderstood. <laughs> Okay, my I used to work in World Financial Center across the street from the Twin Towers. 9-11 was a gargantuan tragedy. But what I'm saying is, in comparison, proportionally, to what mm-hmm. Israel experienced in the second intifada, all right, 9-11, the death toll on 9-11 was a fraction of what Israelis lost to well, terrorism. Look. Because Israel's a much... Just Sorry, I, should, I need to be... Yeah. In this age of Twitter, I need to be particularly careful, okay? Sure. Um, 9-11 was uh, a appalling disaster which motivated most of America to launch 20 years worth of wars, right? But what Israel lost as a country of, at the time, 7 million people or so during the Second Intifada was proportionally a huge number more than what America was. Some Americans, a rare, it's, it's a relatively rare American who knows, knew someone personally, who died in 9-11. Every Israeli knows a grieving father or grieving son or sister who was killed in a bus bombing. Buses blew up all over, all around my, my uh, uh, apartment when I was living in Jerusalem, down the street. My, both my neighborhood cafes blown up. So, so when Israelis, Israelis are not crazy in reacting this way, it's not uh, it's not some weird overreaction on their part because they are obsessed with 100% security. It's an existential feeling that that their neighbors do not intend to live in peace with them. That's the issue. No, I understand that that's the perception. Uh, I don't contest that. And it has to do with history going back uh, even before the creation of Israel, the sense of peril, I mean. 
but um, just just to quickly revisit something. So if I understand you correctly, you're no longer saying that the Palestinians were offered a true state in 2000. You're explaining now why you, Israel doesn't want to offer them a true state with control no, we, of its borders and its airspace. Look, Israel wants to offer the Palestinians. My, my sense is that if Israel had a reasonable, or Israelis had a reasonable basis for believing that Palestinian airspace, water rights, and so on, would not be used to funnel in, for example, Iranian weapons to be fired indiscriminately at, at Israeli targets, if the Palestinians were prepared to create a normal state that doesn't threaten its neighbors, Israel would be willing to grant it. Israel took a tremendous gamble by, by making a deal with a known mm-hmm. terrorist named Yasser Arafat, hoping that this particular leopard had changed his spots. Okay, but, but you're not saying Israel has ever offered them a true state. You're, you're explaining why Israel shouldn't, but you, you're not saying no, they Israel ever have. Offered, Israel offered the Palestinians a true state. Yes, there were limitations on it, right? Like an insistence that it be demilitarized. That is a reasonable uh, demand given this particular history. What other what other uh, political entities are there that we refer to as sovereign states that don't control their borders or their airspace and aren't allowed to have a military in the world? Look, there are the, the, what what other state is offering territory to a neighbor, uh, one of whose major political parties is sworn to its destruction? So this is yes, you're right. This is a sui generis, sui generis, sui generis. I've never known. Um, sui generis situation, but the fact remains that Israel made a good faith offer at Camp David. Ehud Barak went to the very limit of his political ability to make uh, uh, to make this offer, and it was rebuffed without so much as a counter offer. And then it, after it was rebuffed, there was a four year war of 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 uh, uh, a four year campaign of terrorism against Israeli civilians. So Israelis reasonably will say. Why should we want to put ourselves in peril for this for this failed experiment? You know, part of part of the issue, Bob, here is the question of agency. You know, we I think the just listening to you, there's a lot that you attribute to what has to be Israeli agency in making good, making in fulfilling its commitments and its moral obligations to the Palestinians. And that's fair enough. There's very little that I hear about what Palestinians owe their neighbors in order to have a state. And I would add one more point. There are tons of stateless people in the world. The Kurds are stateless. They've been oppressed uh, six ways from Sunday, whether by the Syrians, the Turks, the Iraqis, the Iranians, and so on. Tamils are stateless. Basques are stateless. Catalans are stateless, and so on. But but they all get to vote. Basques get to vote in the Spanish elections. Catalans get to vote in the Spanish elections. These are not comparable situations. The, 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 Kurds, the Kurds have been seeking self determination for for uh, as long as as uh, as anyone can remember, and they're voting in other people's elections, in other states' elections, as as a stateless people. Right? There is not an automatic right to every nation that wants a state. To get a state, it has to meet certain certain expectations of the international community, and the Palestinians, well, yeah, but the Palestinian leadership hasn't met it. Well, I I don't want to get back into international law, but it would be it would be easy to distinguish the situations uh, because again, Israel is not considered under international law 
to to own that territory. But Israel uh, is the most. Would you agree with the statement that when it comes to the United Nations, no state is more unfairly treated than Israel? <laughs> I think I might disagree with that. I mean, most of the things you would consider unfair treatment. Uh, many of the UN resolutions, which like condemn the settlements and so on, I, I would not be, I would not agree with you on, on that being well, unfair. Well, well, but let me I mean, you, now you may be talking about general assembly resolutions, which are, are effectively meaningless in terms of international law, but, but that's a different kettle of fish. Well, no, but let's talk about international opinion. Why is it? I mean, I, this is an honest question. Why do you think the UN Human Rights Commission in its first decade of existence from 2006 to 2016, fully half of its resolutions were condemnations of Israel. How does that happen? I don't know, but I'm not here to defend it, and I'm not. I'm not an expert on that. I, l- let me ask you this: the, um, you know, again, I understand why Israelis are freaked out. Having seen how freaked out Americans got after 9/11, you know, as I said. You would argue that uh, uh, the freakout was even more disproportionate in America. I don't really disagree. But my point is, I understand that in general, disproportionate freakout is a thing. Uh, my own view is that uh, is that it, it, it has led many Israelis to not uh, see as clearly as they might uh, some 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 possibilities that are out there for their long term security. But leave that aside. What I'd like to ask you is. Um, Suppose you were Palestinian. Suppose you had been born and raised in the West Bank. What do you think your attitude would be? And you're familiar, and you, and you, and you are familiar with the history. You know that, in fact, uh, a number of Palestinians were displaced in the course of the expansion of the borders of Israel, uh, from the originally mandated territory to the current armistice lines. You, you probably know people who say, uh, their, their parents owned a house, so on. Some of them were treated brutally. In some cases, ethnic cleansing is, is a fair term. And I don't deny that there was, uh, in some cases in East Jerusalem, it was, it was moving in the other direction, ethnic cleansing in the other direction. I'm not denying any of that. But given, given human psychology, if you grow up in the West Bank in that circumstance and you can see settlers, you know, 500 yards from where you live who get full political rights and have various, you know, material benefits relative to you and get respectful treatment from the police and protection from the police and so on. What do you think your attitude would be toward Israel? Do you think you'd be sitting there thinking, gosh, why haven't we been more willing to accept a state that's not really a state? I mean, you know, what? What, what kind of state would Palestine be? If it no, no, I don't want to change the subject. I, I'm asking you the question. Can you put yourself in the shoes of a Palestinian in the West Bank? Well, let me put myself in the shoes of a, of a Palestinian in East Jerusalem, okay? Okay. Which you would consider the West Bank. Well, it has roughly the same legal status, yeah. Depends on your point of view, all right? When offered, uh, almost all of them want want Israeli working papers. They want access to uh, the state of Israel, its its economy, what it has what it has to offer. For a very good for 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 a series of, of excellent reasons, but one of them is prosperity being the most obvious one, but one of them is that there are actual legal rights within within Israel, however badly enforced and unfairly enforced, and I'm not denying that for one second, there are none in the Palestinian Authority. 
Look, I can't put myself in the shoes of a Palestinian. It's a fool's gambit to even mm. have, 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 have this discussion. Okay. But let me say, let me, let, let me just offer you my view. About a year or two ago, there were huge riots in Gaza. The international media barely reported on it. Barely reported on it. Who were they rioting against? They were rioting against a tyranny known as Hamas, which won't let, you know, women alone which offers no political rights, which has no elections. Uh, people like Salam Fayed, Mohammed uh, 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 Dahlan, other Palestinian political leaders, all have had themselves uh, uh, prosecuted in absentia, uh, um, maligned, harassed. By whom? By President Mahmoud Abbas. So that's, that's also a material point. Now, look, the issue with the, 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 with, with Israel is the points you raise are perfectly fair. Okay. And I don't want to have this conversation, make the argument, oh, everything Israel does is just and fair and right and so forth and so on. All I'm going to say is that I don't think the real core of the conflict here has to do with the fact that there are settlements on uh, a percentage of land of, of the West Bank. The core of the conflict is Palestinian misgovernance and a, and a refusal to come genuinely to terms with the existence and permanence of a Jewish state alongside. Uh, I, I, you know, we can. I, I guess I'm willing to say a couple of things about the Palestinian Authority. First, I just say one more time: Do you not want to do the thought experiment of imagining that you grew up in the West Bank as a Palestinian and try and try to imagine like why you would have a charitable view toward Israel, like, or why you would not have the opposite, in fact. If your only experience with uh, Israelis face-to-face is soldiers uh, who who uh, govern you and, and don't give you the kinds of political rights yes, and, and, that, what, and so on. What I'm saying is that contrary to, to, to media perception, the primary agent of Palestinian misfortune or the misfortune of Palestinians in their everyday life are their tyrannical, kleptocratic, and fanatical rulers. That's that's the argument I'm making. And no, the Palestinians don't like and have, often have many reasons not to like Israelis, but the real source of Palestinian misfortune is unbelievable misgovernance and ideological misdirection by their rulers. Okay, but, you know, the, the fact is the U.S., which has leverage with the Palestinian Authority, as does do some European nations. We're all kind of involved in supporting them in a sense, not just in the obvious material ways of kind of giving them money, but, you know, some of the perks that the uh, Palestinian leadership gets uh, includes it's, you know, going to be easier for them to get their kids into an American college or whatever. We have a lot of leverage with them. And the fact is we have not pushed them to be fundamentally different than they are. And I believe the reason is that the main thing we want out of them is to be uh, not very radical. We just, we just want them to keep the peace. We just want, we just, we just want, and I think Israel wants a West Bank that just doesn't, you know, we don't want a second, another second in a fada. And, and we are willing to accept uh, corruption and what you call tyranny, that may be an overstatement, but, but certainly corruption, authoritarian rule, whatever in the West Bank, so long as they can keep the lid on the pot and keep it from boiling over. No, look, I, uh, there we agree, actually. Okay. I, I think that the United States under different administrations has been scandalously 
indifferent to the nature of Palestinian governance. Look, there is no reason why Palestine can't be Abu Dhabi and Dubai, can't be another United Arab Emirates or some other, or Costa Rica or whatever. All right, Palestinians are extraordinarily talented, uh, remarkable people who the moment they leave uh, Palestine are often doing amazing things, you know, in, in the Palestinian, uh, in the Palestinian uh, diaspora. Um, and there's no reason why they can't bring that that skill, talent, and and worldliness to bear in creating a genuinely uh, um, progressive and democratic and liberal-minded state. And I hope that happens. And I, you know, I want to underscore this. Okay, I am for a Palestinian state. And if a Palestinian state didn't threaten Israel in any meaningful way, I'd be certainly in favor of providing air rights and all the, you know, maritime rights and, you know, the various attributes of full sovereignty, which uh, which you were um, talking about uh, earlier, right? But in order for that to happen, something has to change in terms of Palestinian governance, which is why uh, someone ought to say to the Palestinians, look, governance is an issue. We have, we're going to start minding this and not just funneling money for you guys to have a muhabarat, to have a secret police to keep the peace and otherwise embezzle money from your fellow Palestinians. It's, it's an outrage that the, that the international community still tolerates Mahmoud Abbas in, uh, in power. He makes, he makes the Mubarak regime seem relatively uh, non-corrupt. Well, it seems to me you're conflating two issues here. And I should say, I personally think it's too late for a two-state solution, probably. Not just because the settlements per se, but the whole infrastructure of settlement the highways that Palestinians aren't allowed to drive on and, and, and have trouble even crossing, you know, highways that amount to uh, ways of kind of severing them and separating them from nearby villages and so on. Um, I just think at this point, it's, you know, it's like unscrambling the egg, the two state solution. But, but if you're, but, but, but let's dwell on, I, I do think there, there was a time when it was possible. And I think, uh, maybe one reason it didn't happen is because what I, th- I think is a conflation on your part. We started off, uh, talking about whether you could trust, uh, the Palestinians to not attack Israel if you gave them a true state that had board, they control the borders, they control the airspace, they even get a military. I mean, maybe you could phase that in or something if you insist, but, uh, but they even get a military and you say you couldn't trust them uh to behave that to 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 not attack Israel because and then you move to the other thing that I think you're conflating with this first issue because their leadership isn't truly democratic right now i mean what does that have to do with there are all kinds of states that aren't democratic that are deterrable that 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 as far as being international actors and not threatening their neighbors are involved in stable relationships with them. It just seems to me you're changing the subject here. The experiment Israel has never been willing to do is say, well, maybe we give them a state and if they don't attack us, we'll just leave them to their own devices and we'll let them trade with countries and stuff and have their borders. Because after all, uh I I mean, you know, look, even Gaza I mean, Gaza is a much more volatile situation, much deeper poverty, which they can plausibly blame to some extent on a blockade that is still imposed uh, by Israel. Uh, and and, and, and let, me, can I, let me just finish the thought experiment. The, 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 um, and, and Hamas, as I think even you would say, is more authoritarian by a long shot 
than the Palestinian Authority, less likely to transition to democracy anytime soon. And yet even even uh, Hamas in Gaza, and with a much more volatile populace that in a certain sense is more naturally aggrieved, if only by virtue of the degree of material deprivation, you do get a kind of deterrence. Really? Right? Oh, totally. Look. Oh, yeah, sure. So 4,500 rockets just landed in your neighborhood and everything's fine because the Wright family is intact. Oh, come on, Brett. No, that's not. It's actually a serious point. It's absolutely a serious point. Israel has had four major wars with Gaza since uh-huh. it withdrew its terror, since it withdrew its army. And right. again, so I have to correct you. But right. This, this but, but long. Israel, might- Gaza has international borders with two states. You just said it's blockaded by Israel. Actually, most of the goods, the licit goods that flow into Gaza, flow into it from Israel, all right? What has it done in those in those 16 years? First of all, it had a civil war. Then it created a vast guerrilla and terrorist infrastructure funded and supplied by, by Iran to attack Israel. And by the way, the attacks on Israel, however efficacious they were, and they were only ineffective because Israel has this Iron Dome system that def- uh, that that uh, that defends uh, that that uh, defends it. But Gaza has simply been turned into a into a terrorist base to attack its neighbor. So obviously, Israel is not is going to say, "Why should we replicate this experiment in in the West Bank?" Uh, to, I mean, but part of my you, part of my you, point is to be to, to 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 engage in an exercise of trying to be a Palestinian. If you were a center of the road, middle of the road, Israeli, right. looking at what happened in Gaza, okay, your view would be, yeah, let's do this again, because maybe if we do more of the same thing, we're going to get a different result. I thought that was the definition of, of insanity, according to someone or other, Einstein, I think. Um, first of all, let me be clear. You know, as for let's try this again. Again, the West Bank is radically different from Gaza. I think the prospects for success would be uh, much better. But I mean, let's say different? let's say a couple of things about Gaza. First of all, they had an election, and we said it's fine for Hamas to participate. And then Hamas actually won, and we played a role in effectively nullifying the results. And 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 that's what led to the civil war that led Hamas to take over violently. Yeah, we, were, we were not willing to let them rule for for uh you know a week or whatever. Oh, and, there you're absolutely right. Okay. The the, the way right. in which the Bush administration allowed that to happen was one of the great You mean the, allowed them to participate in the election? Well, they did one of they did two things that were stupid. Number one, they allowed a party to participate in an election when that party wasn't prepared to play by the by the rules in which the election was being held, among other things, recognition of the Oslo Accords. But then when we allowed that to happen, then we denied the results. So as far as U.S. policy is concerned, it was, it was a, it was a total disaster and, 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 and a, a basic, basic mistake by, uh, okay. by the Bush administration. I will, I will say if you go back and look at the videotape right after Hamas won that election and look at what uh, some of the leaders were saying, they were making noises about uh, about fundamentally changing their attitude toward Israel. I don't mean they could turn on a dime and say, you know, you're right, this is Israel's territory. But they were talking about long-term truces and so on. Nobody wanted to test that and see if it could evolve into something better. But but the main thing I want to say about uh, uh, Gaza is 
I'm not, you know, obviously the, the, uh, it's a much more precarious situation from Israel's point of view. Uh, and the triggers for, uh, you know, for war are very different than you might get from the West Bank. But I think even you will agree that there are, uh, that there is a kind of, of, um, A, there's a kind of deterrence. Uh, I mean, a- after the 2014 war, Hamas wasn't coming back for more, uh, anytime soon. And B, as for this most recent war, just about anyone could have told you that if you send Israeli police into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which again, under international law, is not even, is not even part of Israel, and have them fire rubber bullets in one of the most holy mosques, uh, in the world, that Hamas is probably, it probably one of the unwritten rules is they're going to have to fire a few rockets. Now, yes, the, the retaliation no, was few, pretty massive, few, but this was not unpredictable. Few, this was not unpredictable. A few rockets, 4,500 rockets is not a few no, rockets. No, 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 4,500 in the course of the whole thing. How many did they fire before Israel massively retaliated? They, they started firing 12, rockets. 15? Fine, but how many? Don't fire rockets at other countries. That's a, that, talking about violations hey, don't, of international Don't law. invade mosques. A, a, a terrorist group using territory as an entrepot to, to fire rockets indiscriminately is very much the definition of a war crime. And then firing those rockets from civilian areas is a further war crime. Now, I'm yes, just, you can absolutely look. Israel's at fault in all kinds of tactical ways. Okay. It's police are heavy handed. They're stupid. Uh, they were responding in part to the Meron disaster of a few weeks, uh, uh, a few weeks earlier. Okay. All of those are, are errors of judgment that, that the Israeli government made. Okay. okay. But the basic point here is that the, that, that, that Hamas's, the Hamas's response is not, you know, to say it's understandable. It's outrageous. I'm not saying you it's know? understandable. I didn't say that. I said it was predictable. Okay. Well, it was predictable. Yeah, well, that's my point. You can't say it was a failure of deterrence. You can't say, well, Hamas had forgotten about what they, what happens when they fire rockets or anything, or they don't care what happens. Uh, you knew that the unwritten rules were that if Israel does this, some rockets are probably going to come in and Israel chose to do it. I'm not saying who's right, who's wrong. I'm saying, I'm saying that in a, in a deterrent situation, you got to know the rules. I'm just saying that the fact that, that Rockets that Hamas fired rockets, in that case, is not in itself evidence that deterrence failed, and and in all kinds of ways, um, I think you see that uh, deterrence often has an effect. I, I don't want to get into a big argument about that. I would say Israel's never even been, been willing to try in the case of uh, uh, the West Bank, and and um, you know, but but you know, I think it's too late for two states anyway. Well, I disagree. Um, so I think you're mistaken. And I think, as a matter of fact, things do change. The history is filled with examples of conflicts which seem totally intractable and then suddenly become tractable. Uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict is essentially, as an overarching conflict, essentially came to an abrupt end in the last six years, which was, you know, finalized by the Abraham Accords, uh, uh, arranged with the tacit consent of Saudi Arabia. Israel's real conflict isn't with the Sunni Arab states at all anymore. It's, it's with Shiite or Shiite backed states, Lebanon, Syria, uh, Iran, uh, and now Hamas, which is richly funded and armed by, by, uh, the Iranians. No one predicted that could happen. 
it's it's entirely possible that as 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 Israel senses that its security horizons go deeper into the Arab world, it can make sensible concessions of territory closer to home, right? If Israel feels like Jordan is secure and beyond that there's an Arab world that's not making war with it uh, or intent on making war with it, then you can imagine a different situation. And you can certainly imagine that at some point, Palestinians are going to get sick of being tyrannized by Hamas and and Fatah, and hopefully that day will come soon, and everyone can everyone can be happy. But until then, Israel is the only state that has a history of people who are attempting to annihilate, that has another regime that declares its intent to annihilate it, facing facing. There you mean there you mean Hamas, not the Palestinian Authority no, in the West Bank. I mean, oh, Iran, oh, right, right, okay. which just elected a war criminal, as it's, uh, or a, 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 a not a war criminal, but a, a massive human rights violator, um, as its as its uh, president, well, is, is intent on wiping Israel off the face of the earth. Well, we and could. So it's, we not could, we crazy, could uh, it's not crazy. We um, could. We could have a long discussion about what things various people have said, and 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 whether uh, in in Iran, and whether that amounts to an actual. Uh, there's any reason to seriously believe that they aim to, you know, wipe out the Jewish people uh, in Israel. I oh, you uh, don't think they do. I don't want to have that conversation. I'm happy to schedule another conversation with you about Iran. I I'm totally happy. Would love it. No, no, that's fine. But go ahead. This is great. Uh, I, I think, again, Iran is Iran has been an extremely uh, rational actor and, and in the sense of uh, in all the senses in which we mean it, deterrable. Uh, and why I think, does Iran make war on Israel? Um, What's the rationale? Well, Iran, Iran per se has never made war on Israel. You mean you mean uh, group, proxy groups or something? Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, every proxy. Well, I mean, again, uh, they declare Israel to be the little Satan. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Hamas, of course. I mean, uh, I you know, we could have another discussion about what is in is what what does proxy mean? Does it mean that everything Hamas does comes on the authority of Iran, or does Hamas actually have its own grievances and sometimes act? Uh, well, everything Hezbollah does pretty much comes on the authority of Iran. Well, that's another example of uh, actually that 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 uh, last round of serious fighting with Hezbollah was a long time ago uh, in terms of in terms of if you want to have an, a discussion about deterrence. But leave all that aside. I mean, the um, you know, you said that the Palestinians. Well, let me say quickly about the Abraham Accords. I mean, one thing that bothers me, one one reason I would like to solve the Palestinian problem is that it seems to me that uh, the U.S. often does things um, to uh, at the behest of or in support of Israel, that it does because of this, this uh, environment of conflict, that I don't approve of. I don't approve of us giving uh, uh, United Arab Emirates a bunch of uh, fighter planes, given the fact that the last thing they were seen to do with armed force was kill a bunch of people in Yemen. Uh, and, and that was part of the payoff for them joining the Abraham Accords. I don't believe in our recognizing Morocco's claim over uh, Western Sahara, which is illegal under international law, as their payoff for joining the Abraham Accords. As for... Uh, the issue of um, way, actually, on that point, you agree with John Bolton, but I, I just couldn't resist saying that. Uh, 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 I'm sure there are actually no, I'm not sure there are a number of things I agree with John Bolton on, but I'm delighted to hear that uh, there is a there is a, a basis for um, some degree of concord between the two of us. Um, the uh, 
But, you know, as for your saying, well, eventually the Palestinians will get sick of uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority and get sick of Hamas. Well, they will get sick of them a lot quicker, I think, if they don't keep getting reasons, you know, refreshed reasons to hate Israel. I mean, you talked about the toll taken in Israel uh, in the first intifada proportionally, right, compared to the toll taken in America by 9-11. Well, look at the toll taken in Gaza in 2014. You've got a population of 2 million. You killed 2,000 people. Do the math there, right? That's a different order of magnitude from what uh, either Israel experienced in the first uh, uh, intifada, the second intifada, or uh, the United States. And, And I just... I know you think there were reasons that Israel has to respond disproportionately and kind of always wind up with a with a very high ratio of of dead uh, people in Gaza compared to dead people in Israel, uh, and, and I believe I believe it's it's earnest and it's heartfelt. I really okay, think. Can I interject for one second? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Israel could wipe out Hamas tomorrow. Israel's a militarily very powerful country, right? Well, it'd have to kill a lot of civilians, but. Yeah, probably. But if if Israel is as malign a state as its critics claim, then the question has to be, well, why hasn't it acted more malignantly? I mean, Bashar Assad doesn't stop to think whether he's killed a thousand of his enemies or 10,000 of his enemies. In his his view, the more the more the better. He's absolutely indifferent to these sorts of considerations. You just said that Israel kills disproportionately. I don't agree with that statement. I think if anything... Israeli behavior has been dictated by uh, a profound sense of proportion and a remarkable sense, at least compared with other Western powers, particularly the United States, in trying to be discriminate and precise in its use of force. Difficult to do when your enemy has its headquarters in the basement of a hospital and and, 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 and puts its weapons depots in UNRWA schools, mosques, and other uh, and, and and other civilian uh, civilian targets, and so this is this is I think I mean I know this is a not quite where you're taking this conversation, but I think it's it's important to make this point because Israel is now treated in some quarters of the left it's like the most malign state in the world, the, st- the state that reacts unthinkingly and grotesquely in the face of. Um, what are allegedly at most minor or predictable provocations by groups that would just be totally fine if only they achieved total power. And my argument is if they achieve total power, they would be worse. And Israel is not reacting gratuitously or disproportionately against Israel is trying to figure out its way in the world in a world that is still to this day bent on its diminution and sometimes its destruction. And that's that's the essence of the problem that we, we have here. Let's recognize that we still haven't figured out what happened, what what you know what, we, we still haven't resolved the issues of 1948. Too much of the world isn't prepared to live with a state of Israel, a Jewish state in any in any borders uh, whatsoever. And so long as that's the case, Israelis are going to be on their guard they're going to be uh, uh, they're going to be tough, and they're going to be very wary of making concessions that are going to put Israeli civilian lives in danger. The whole point of Israel is to say the Jewish people aren't going to take this shit anymore. That's the point of Israel, and 
And I do not fault them for living up to that promise. But do you, do you think the strategy is, is working in the case of Gaza and the West Bank? I mean, again, if your goal is for them to slowly get sick of their kind of local governance, right? Shouldn't you be very wary of providing them with reason? I don't mean logical reason. I know you might say, well, the, the, the Palestinians in Gaza aren't justified in hating Israel over this last war because, uh, after all, whatever. But the fact is, given human nature, you know that any people in the position of the Palestinians in Gaza would come to hate Israel after the bombardment they endured this time and even more so the bombardment they, they endured in 2014. Leaving aside who, who you want to say started it, it's it just as a matter of human nature, you know you are deeply intensifying their hatred of Israel. And I'm sure you would agree that that does complicate the scenario where they, where they eventually reach agreement with Israel out of frustration with their own leadership. So in light of that, don't you think Israel should be more careful before they do things like send police into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, oh, firing sure. rubber Listen, bullets? Uh, look, yes, okay. The Israelis do all kinds of things stupidly, all right? And this is, this is an... Uh, Eric Hoffer once made the amusing point. He said Israel is the only country in the world expected to behave like a Christian nation. All kinds of police forces uh, overreact, uh, screw up, misjudge a situation, famously in the United States, obviously, but, you know, uh, elsewhere in the world. And it would be stupid and pointless of me to try to defend every tactical Israeli decision. But that's presumably not the conversation that we're uh, that we're having here. Um, well, no, I, I mean, what it, what I guess Hamas didn't go to war with Israel, by the way, because of what happened at the Al Aqsa Mosque. Hamas went to war because Mahmoud Abbas once again postponed, quote unquote, postponed presidential elections. What this was was a was at least as much about a power play with Fatah as it was about a, a response to a, a, a stupid Israeli decision. Well, that, that was, I would say, another factor that made it more predictable that you would get rockets coming over the border if you invaded the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But, uh, but I see, I guess, um, in a way, what I'm trying to question is a premise that I think is actually pretty widespread in Israel, which is like, they're going to hate us no matter what. The world's going to hate Israel no matter what. Uh, Palestinians are going to hate Jews or Israel or something no matter what. What, what does it matter? And I just question that premise. And, and, and that's, that's the premise I'm, I'm trying to question now when I suggest that it really isn't in Israel's long-term interest, uh, to, um, respond the way they've been responding, even to maintain, you know, uh, I, I just, I, I mean, again, to never offer the Palestinians an actual state, for example. Uh, I just think it. An actual state is you. As you've just described it. Well, but, as, as we ahead. define a sovereign state, I think, you know, uh, again, we, we've had that part of the discussion and, and I'm, 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 uh, you know, I, I take a sovereign state to be something that can control its borders and airspace and trade freely with, and, you know, and so on. Um, and, and when you say, well, gosh, given the way Gaza did react to, you know, liberation or something, why should we take chance? And Gaza's never, we've never done the experiment. Right. Yes, we did. I mean, Gaza was you, under literal occupation and you then was under blockade. What's that? that? Uh, the West Bank is totally different from Gaza. I'm not sure that's right. I think if an election were held in the Palestinian Authority tomorrow, a free and fair one, or a month from now, a free and fair one in 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 the West Bank, chances are that Hamas would win that too. 
And that's a problem. So something has to change in terms of the willingness of Palestinians to elect a political party and a, that happens also to be a terrorist movement that happens to want to make war on, on their neighbors. I don't know what that is, right? I, I, can't, I can't speak again. You tried to make me speak for the Palestinians or as a Palestinian. I can't, I can't do that. No, I don't want you to do, do that. But I do know that that is what fundamentally has to change in order to, to resolve this conflict. And when it does, and it has in the past, people, nations, cultures do change. They do evolve often for the better. Um, then there should be a Palestinian state with full, with full sovereign rights, as you, as you described them. Just because it's small doesn't mean it can't be beautiful. Singapore is a great state. It's tiny. You know, other, other states are, are managed to prosper, even though their territories are divided or, or other issues are imperfect. It's a matter of being prepared to have government and a people that is progressive in the, I don't, in the traditional or the original meaning of that word rather than wedded to terrorist organizations that when they're not making war on their neighbors or making war on their own people. Yeah, to be clear, I wasn't asking you to speak for Palestinians. I was asking you to do the thought experiment of growing up in the West Bank, really trying to visualize the kinds of encounters kids in the West Bank have with the the, uh, the IDF and the settlements they see, the rights they do and don't have, the whole thing, and imagine how you would view Israel. Because, well, as I said, let me ask you this: in that, in that, in that, in light of what you just asked. So, if you grew up in Gaza and you were gay, um, no, this is a serious question. I know where, it is, but you keep kind you, of changing where, where the subject. To, where would you? Where would you want to be? In Gaza or in Tel Aviv? So when you looked at Israel, what would you see? Would you see a country that's nothing but oppressive? Or actually, would you see a country that it might hold the keys to your personal liberty? So you're saying the, the reason uh, Israel does isn't more accommodating toward Gaza but is because it doesn't approve of their gay rights policy? I mean, I don't understand the relevance. The relevance is that the average uh, – that the Palestinians who, who, who are in disfavored categories because they're gay, because they're women – sometimes because they're Christians or because they're free thinkers, might actually look at Israel not as an oppressor, but as a model for the kind of state they would like to have for themselves. All the more reason. want to move there and live there and take advantage of its of its civil liberties. A point that should matter to, to people who are progressive, because all of this criticism of Israel from progressives comes from people who are furious at a state, which is the only state in the region that affirms their own values. Never mind the policies, your own values. The, um, you know, the, the reason I was trying to get you to do the thought experiment with the Palestinians is when I do the thought experiment with Israelis, I actually understand why their conception of vigilance and national security is so, you might say, assertive. In other words, it's like the second, you know, the second intifada, various historical things. You know, it doesn't shock me that, that they are in the frame of mind they're in. I'm, I'm trying to get you to consider the possibility. I mean, you complained that, gosh, if, if, uh, if there were an election, uh, you know, uh, in the West Bank, 
uh, Hamas might win. I'm trying to ask you if you can get yourself uh, in, in the in the you know if you put yourself in the shoes of Palestinians, if maybe that doesn't surprise you. That's just the way humans react under the kinds of circumstances they face. Because you know if that's what we have a situation where people on both sides are reacting, you know, predictably, then we need to think creatively about changing the equation, A. And B, I, I would ask, like, if if what you're worried about is Palestinians in the West Bank maybe voting for Hamas in an election, well, then maybe Israel's policy shouldn't be, as you just put it, we're not going we're going to prove that we never take shit we're not going to take shit anymore that does seem to me like a fair description of their policy toward the palestinians i just don't think it's productive well okay and that was absolutely the policy up until 1993 when after the election of Yitzhak Rabin israel adopted a different view and made genuinely difficult concessions all the way through the withdrawal from gaza in 2005 to um make way for a Palestinian state. And unfortunately, the result for Israel was not more peace, it was more hostility, more violence and more terrorism. That's that's the core of the problem, that Israel did try to think creatively, and what it came up with didn't work. Now, hey, I don't have all the answers. There are probably other creative solutions. But what you're suggesting sounds to me like uh, let's just go the whole way with a, with a strategy that so far hasn't worked, and maybe that'll work. And I'm just skeptical that that's, that's really a smart way to go. I think one thing that might work, again, is by sort of moving forward with the promise of the Abraham Accords, deepening Israel's ties with the rest of the Arab world, promoting Arab human and economic development, and then changing the kind of the broader equation, so basically solving the bigger problem so you can then solve the smaller problem rather than, than the other way around. That would be my, my intuition of where to go. But whatever the case is, it's going to be very difficult so long as uh, Palestinian political culture remains what it has been. Um. You know, well, as for the Oslo Accords, um, and, and Rabin, I mean, you know, one of the first acts of terrorism was a settler killing Rabin. And, 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 and there are, of course, two sides of the story as to who did and didn't comply with the Oslo Accords and how that thing unraveled. Uh, but I, I guess I, I would say, I mean, one question is, uh, do you, do, do you agree? I, I, I think one could say that Israel's position in the world is in a certain sense getting worse. I mean, the Abraham Accords, uh, I can see why you might celebrate that again, uh, to some extent. It was the U.S., you know, paying people off to explicitly be, um, Israel's friend, but it, I'm not saying it's, I'm, I'm not saying it's nothing, but suppose you just look at opinion in America. I, I'm curious as what you think about, uh, where that seems to be heading because a lot of people noted, that uh this time around uh if you compare this war with the 2014 Gaza war um there was much more uh not just a more critical attitude toward Israel in America but even in uh official political circles uh including a few congress people you would consider radicals maybe but also you know in other ways and and, and what i'm suggesting is 
<laughs> you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I in uh, like 1989 or something at the New Republic, we had some Palestinians to lunch. And Marty Parrots, right? And I remember this exchange between Marty and I at the end, after they had left, and we were arguing. And he said, uh, time is on our side, meaning Israel's. Like, we don't have to rush. We don't have to get anything done. And I said, no, time is on their side. Now, since then, I've had many occasions to think maybe he was right and he was wrong. But lately, I've really wondered about that. Think I don't think things have gotten better for Israel. I, I don't think... Uh, and, and I think... They're going to have more and more trouble defending uh, the the status uh, of the West Bank, for example. And you're seeing signs of that. And I think it's happening in America, which traditionally has been their most cherished and obviously most powerful supporter. So I'm, I'm curious what you think about all that. Uh, first, I'm going to have to go soon, not out of rudeness to you, but to get my. No, I, I, listen, I, I am nothing if not gracious and accepting surrender. No, that's not. But yeah, it's funny that you raise this because I, I really think you're raising the like the really deep point here, which is on whose side time time lies. And the contention of the left is your contention, which is that demographically, uh, time isn't on Israel's side from the standpoint of global public opinion, et cetera, et cetera. I had reasons to suspect you're mistaken. Time will tell. Ha ha. Um, but for the following reasons, first of all. Yes, Israel is losing friends on college campuses and in certain precincts of the West. Israel's making lots of friends in India, Japan, Greece, uh, the, the, uh, the peripheries of Africa, states in the Arab world where it never had friends, uh, before. So the question of whether Israel's gaining or losing friends, I'd say actually on the margins, it's gained friends. Secondly, Israel's immensely wealthier than it used to be. Uh, one of my colleagues at the New York Times pointed out that in, after the original Camp David Accords, U.S. military aid to Israel amounted to 10% of GDP. It's now something like 1% of GDP. And that wealth translates into, into options for Israel that it didn't, it didn't have before. Thirdly, from a population point of view, uh, Jewish birth rates remain uh, robust. Some will argue it's the wrong Jewish birth rate because it's the Haredi uh, uh, Jewish birth rate. But, uh, meaning birth meaning rates, the ultra-Orthodox. The ultra ultra-Orthodox. Mm-hmm. But, but birth rates in the Arab world are going down while Israel's remain relatively, uh, relatively high. Um, so it's not, I guess the point is, I don't know, but it's not so clear-cut, I think, as some of the critics of Israel, or, or I should say not critics, but... Um, um, anxious friends of Israel uh, 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 would say, Israel is like a plane that is s- circling a runway on which it cannot yet land for a variety of reasons. It has only so much gas. And there's a question as to whether it's going to be able to you, land. You know, you know Tom Friedman, don't you? You can do a metaphor when it really, when it really, uh. Okay, but in this case, uh, this is actually a metaphor I think I came up with before Tom. Okay, oh, okay. You know, it, it sounds very Friedman-esque. That's funny that you say that. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the question is, uh, will it be able to land that plane? Will it be able to create a set of conditions on the ground, not just with the Palestinians, but in its wider neighborhood? that allow it to land, because Israel should not rule over Palestinians indefinitely, right? Palestinians should be able to rule 
themselves, and Israel should also be allowed to uh, have a state that is secure, truly secure, not precariously secure, um, universally uh, 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 recognized and, and here to stay. And if you think of other countries, Israel's still in its infancy. Most, I mean, my mother is much older than Israel. Um, uh, it's a country that's working things out, and and I suspect it might take another hundred years before it figures it figures it out altogether. Ooh, so that's we'll a long see. time. A hundred years in the life of a nation is not that much, and the life uh, of Jewish people is nothing. A lot of bad things could happen in a hundred years. Right, my um, daughter is peeking her okay. head. Okay, I was and, and giving me the stink eye. I was so. I was uh, kidding about your having to leave, uh, constituting your your surrender. Um, I think it may take one more conversation before you put up the white flag. So maybe we'll have that down the road. In any event, Brett, right, uh, I thanks hope a I lot. I realized I was a little abrasive at the beginning, and you're such a gracious. No, I, I had my moments of sarcasm. I, I, I would say you're in no worse shape than I am. Okay. Well, anyway, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. And I, Same I genuinely here. learn a lot from these conversations. Same here. I really appreciate it. Let, let's okay. do it again. All right. Thanks, Brett.